On May 2nd, three weeks after the ouster of Omar al-Bashir, upward of a million Sudanese protesters joined a sit-in in Khartoum to demand that the ruling military council hands over power to a civilian administration. The call for a mass march came from the Declaration of Freedom and Change Forces, an alliance of activists and opposition groups. After the alliance could not reach an agreement with the military council, on the features of a transitional political structure, such as who would control the joint civilian-military body meant to oversee the transition period. To learn more about the recent political developments in Sudan, Shahram Agamir spoke to Al-Sadiq al-Sheikh. He is the director of the Global Justice Program at the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at the University of California, Berkeley, where he oversees the program's projects on global and local food systems, global equity, and human rights. He starts by telling us about the negotiations between the opposition and the military council. On Thursday, May 2nd, the opposition under the umbrella of freedom and change, including the, the people in the ground with the representation of Sudanese Professional Association, called for uh, this show of force, as if you will, to demonstrate that they're rejecting the delay from the military council, the interim military council, respecting and, and, and responding to their specific demands. And that's basically circle around issues of uh, who will lead the transition period in Sudan. You know, the opposition insisted on has to be a civilian role, civilian control government rather than the leadership of the military council. But at the same time, we know that the military council, as many in opposition dubbed it as uh, plan B of the regime, that tried to circumvent all the aspiration of the Sudanese people and to delay the revolutionary change that might carry on with this radical program of our opposition. In that sense, we, we see that there is two kind of camps colliding. One is the Interim Military Council with the support of the DB state in Sudan with the, from the following regime and with a very close association with international and regional power, including in particular Egypt, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and most likely behind them the silence of the American administration as well. And here I don't spare also the European Union. On the other hand, we have the power of the Sudanese people with the leadership that they trusted the Sudanese professional association and the forces who came under the Declaration of Freedom and Change, which uh, have representation of youth movement, women movement, uh, political parties that have been absent for the last three decades, many other associations. So it seems there is very clear two camps. Camps that work toward this intifada or popular uprising to achieve very particular programs, and another representing the DB state that try to hold this transition into a different kind of path. Before we get into talking in more details about these two camps, why don't you give us a quick summary of how we got where we are today? How did the protests start in December and evolve? And what were some of the watershed moments or events? You know, this is a really very interesting question. I, I would like to take your listener even farther back than December. The beginning of this current revolt started in 2013. 
but the regime of Omar al-Bashir cracked very bloody and violently against the protesters. And in that particular time, in the spring of 2013, the Sudanese Professional Association emerged as the organizer for this movement to be known later on. And nobody knew about them at the moment. And they have to work underground. So they went with ups and downs due to the regime crack on them, 2013, and, and they moved on and, and still reached uh, the peak in 2018 in December. And it seems at that moment that's the end, and they could see the light at the end of the tunnel. So with the massive uh, reorganizing and organizing and reaching out to the Sudanese in every uh, corner of the state, you know, uh, this time they use uh, the most sophisticated organizing tool is to organize actually the periphery rather than the center. And I'm sure you know that the fairest city to revolt is the city of Adbara, which is in the northeast Sudan, which is very well known for the Sudanese people. We call it the city Medina al-Hadid Wanar, the city of uh, fire and steel. And the reason they say that, because it's the headquarters of the worker of railways, and they are very well known for their progressive outlook to the issues of the state. So the first revolt in December actually emerged from there, and it spread out through different other cities, 26 cities before it arrived to the capital city of Khartoum, and from there became almost impossible for the regime to, to contain this massive revolt. Everybody in the revolt organized under that umbrella? No, but most people, they see that they can trust this new generation of leaders because it seems they are emerging from them. They know their issues and they speak with one voice and they utilize all tools that are available to them, including social media. They're reaching out people in and outside Sudan. And I remember that I'm here in Berkeley receiving all this uh, specific demand like, hey, you need to talk to the international community. And this is our talking point. How these people get to know us? I mean, that shows the level of sophistication and, and, and they've been prepared and very well organized including many youth movements like Grivna and others, but there are many of them. So all of them kind of put their hand together in order to uh, present a, a very large segment of the Sudanese society. So uh, the news outlets have mostly reported that the military rulers and the Alliance for Freedom and Change have agreed on a, a joint civilian military council to rule Sudan until the elections are held. But the two seem to be at loggerheads over the composition of the council. What are the real bones of contention? It, the makeup of the council seems to be important, but not the only issue. And I, I should say, as we are conducting this discussion and conversation here, we are receiving breaking news that there might have been a, an agreement reached by the two sides. Can you talk about these bones of contention and what are the roots of this uh, you know, uh, contention, if you like? So uh, the, the root of this collision, if you will, between these two large camps that most people in opposition on the ground, the people who are leading the revolt against the former deposited regime, when they arrive in April 6th to the barricade and the headquarters of the armed forces, their demand was, we need our army, the people's army, to protect the revolution. Why that they were demand? Because they know that the only force is capable in reality 
to stop any bloodshed against them will be the armed force. But they've been also very aware that the high-ranking generals, they are all of them co-opted and corrupted by the regime in the last 30 years. So they didn't have an illusion who actually heading the, the army. But their, their, their call was toward the mid-ranking and lower soldiers that they have this, felt the same burn against this regime for three decades. And then the leadership of the army being forced under the pressure, since they know that if al-Bashir gets ousted, it, it might be half a catastrophic consequences on them, particularly. So they decided to join solidarity with the Sudanese people and to take over as an internal coup against al-Bashir, but it's also a, it's a circumvent the, the people aspiration. So now they didn't know that in reality that actually the opposition have a very clear plan of 10 points program. And most of us, we know that, except, uh, I guess, uh, the deposited regime and their generals. So one of the major demands is the extension of the uh, transition period and who lead the transition period. So that's, I think, the two issues that really stood between the two camps, if you will, the military council and opposition. Well, in a way, it's like the status quo versus change, isn't it? Exactly. It's exactly that, because the whole idea uh, in opposition and uh, uh, the movement led by youth and organized professionals, their demand was we have to dismantle re- the regime from its own roots, mm-hmm. f- f- the deep state in particular, because changing generals or names or substitute al-Bashir with somebody else is actually is not about any change. That's a transactional change. The call was for deep transformational change. In order to do that, you have to uproot the deep state. And the deep state, if you imagine 30 years, entrenched deeply within the civil services, within all the institution of the state, from the judiciary, from civil services, education, and what have you. So they've been very aware of that. And I think that was, and it still is, the problem. So the military council came with a different formula, is that we're going to have, uh, they will be the leader of this transitional period for two years. And that was the big no when, when the opposition decided they will do the sit-ins since April 6. And the sit-in uh, demand, we are not going to move from here till we, you transfer the power to civilian rules. And, and we should be clear that the sit-in was pivotal in terms of making sure that Bashir was ousted from power. Very true, very yeah. true. But all the concern was, you know, uh, in, in any autocratic regime and dictatorships, the head of the state is not only the goal for the people who are revolting, it's actually the whole in- the regime itself, because we have the security apparatus, we have the financial clandestine of the, of the regime entrenched in controlling the whole entire landscape of any economic activities. So in reality, even if you get the power, what you will do with it? You don't have the means in order to, to, to move forward. So, and in this particular conjunction, I think the Sudanese opposition with this young leadership, they really show sophistication and understanding. And on one hand, they didn't want to uh, direct radical eruption with those generals because that could lead to bloodshed, which is another thing that they've been worried about it, with the example around us in the region. On the other hand, they don't want to uh, about the demand and, and the fear tactic that the military council used that we are here to protect the security of our people and our borders. So how you negotiate that in a moment that everything moving so fast, 
And also, like I, I stated earlier, that also you have non-friendly power in the region that they want to make sure that there is no change, real change happening in Sudan because that will threaten their regimes as well. Sure, we'll, we'll talk about that. I think that's an important factor to point out. Just to be clear, the opposition is also asking for a transition time of four years into a legitimate election, if you like, uh, while the military is asking for a shorter time. Can you talk about that aspect and why that aspect is so important? Definitely for the opposition and for the military council, this was a second hardest point to reach an agreement around. The two options was very obvious will tell you whether that body will come to rule the country in the transition period, whether their intention is to do deep change in the society and the state or actually to keep the status quo. So if you imagine 30 years of autocracy and dictatorship rules, how is possible you will clear up the house and prepare for fair and, and free elections? That's almost an impossible task for any government to do. The second thing, the military council want to make sure that the symbols and the leadership of the National Congress Party, the ruling party, the Islamist party, that they not to be subjugated to trial. And my deep belief that that's one of the deals that Omar al-Bashir struck with Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and uh, CC of Egypt, is he will step down from power, but there's no trial. And it seems from a different type of leaks that uh, we've been seeing in the last months or so that even Western government is in cahoots with this plan. So there is kind of guarantee if you step down, there is no ICC, and there is kind of safety for your own personnel. So, so the, the opposition was demanding we need four years to clear up the house, to prepare the country, to write a new constitution, to establish rule of law, to establish our national institution, to rebuild you know, the structure of the army and intelligence service and the police, because those are also the tools of oppression in Sudan. So they are very aware of that. You can't keep the old regime and it is intact, and you try to do any democratic change. And it seems this is one of the, if you will, the ignorance of the Western corridors of power that they just seek an election. How you will do an election in a society that every aspect of the freedom of choice, freedom of thoughts, been absent and cracked down on it for three decades? Most of the people who protested in the street, they born within this regime. Well, generally speaking, a shorter period of time would allow the forces of the ancien regime uh, the forces of a status quo to prevail in an election because, as you mentioned, the political space had been confined and it has not allowed the, the opposition forces to revive it, to revive the political sphere and, and be able to organize and mobilize to get their message out. So that usually helps the people who have been in power. And I think that's uh, mm-hmm. is an important point to point out. And it's also to add to that, they want to make sure that, you know, uh, most of those generals also, they have complacency in the wrongdoing and they're, uh, they are not free of uh, responsibility of shedding blood of our people. So shorter period of time means they are not, not going to be trial for everybody. And maybe they will sacrifice the head of the regime, you know. Uh, but that's not our demand. It's not about vengeance. But in order to correct the wrong and to correct the path forward, we have to establish the rule of law. And in order to do that, you need a longer period of time to trial every single person 
in the last 30 years that actually harm our people, harm our economy, our natural world. You know, uh, Sudan being subjugated to unfair aspect of, let's say, international or regional trade, for example. A lot of our arable lands being sold or leased for a neighboring country for uh, really penny and dimes. So who's responsible? How you can revise this in two years? You, you can't actually even go below the surface level. So the people in opposition, they want to make sure that before they hand it over to political parties, they want to make sure that they clear up the house, they set the stage, clear the way forward. In particular, for example, there is another issue, the relationship between religion and state. It's very obvious from the opposition, especially the youth movement, that they want break away from this. They okay. want to establish a republic based on equal citizenship status rather than religiosity and everybody equal regardless of their race, gender, sexuality, and origin. And that's very profound. And most of us in our opposition, because I consider myself part of this young movement because we grew up during this regime, uh, that's... This is our liberation movement. It's not 1956 when we gain our independence because we never completed our delinking with the colonial mindset that ruled our country for such a long period of time. And, and you know, that is interesting. If Sudan's uprising succeeds in accomplishing its objectives, it would be the first time that you actually have an, a regime with an Islamist you know, agenda that is being toppled. By the, by the masses. And this is the first time there have been uh, movements, Islamist movements that have been crushed or defeated, but this would be actually the first time that they're in power. And so this is in a way, it's, it epitomizes a new era for the entire region. Exactly true, and that's one of the the misconception about the Sudanese Intifada or Sudanese revolt, popular revolt. This is Sudan is the only Arab Islamic country that actually ruled by political Islam, in particularly uh, a, a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. And the uh, religiosity in Sudan being entrenched in order to allow the dictatorship to survive, because most of the population are, you know, adhered to that uh, faith, or seventy uh, percent prior to the breakup of the South, and now almost ninety-nine percent. We don't have uh, specific stats on that. However, people are very aware, yes, we can adhere to the same faith, but we don't want the religion to rule our time on earth. And we have to make sure that to correct the path. So in this sense, it's really the Sudanese experience is totally different than the other Arab Spring. And we are more or less close to the African experience in that sense, because it's about correcting the path post-colonial time. And that's what a lot of our neighboring country and observer, and even in the West, they keep missing the point. This is different. This is not about a group being oppressed, hijacked the bar for 30 years. Muslim Brotherhood never been oppressed in the history of Sudan. It never. They never been jailed. It's jailed for political gain by their own people. They could have a struggle over power and subjugate their old friends and allies to uh, bad treatment, maltreatment, and imprisonment. But in reality, they always enjoyed a sort of freedom within both independent Sudan. So uh, this is, will be complete breakaway with the whole idea of, of the Arab Spring kind of, of revolt that we witnessed in the last uh, decade. So it's different in the sense that people looking for uprooting the whole entire 
colonial apparatus that even though the colonial power left but the, the coloniality is still reside in our relationship with the metropolitan how we conduct our state how we build our institution how we design our educational system despite that we uh, not necessarily calling for eruption with the rest of the world that's not true actually we want to have a good relationship with the rest of the world but based on our sovereign decision making and how we want to rule our country and that's fundamentally uh, grounded in the deep democratic process if i may add to that in terms of uh, relationship to the uh, major powers of the world uh, omar al-bashir's regime was not exactly a, a client state of the united states and so forth and so on right that's a debatable one yes yes <laughs> yeah, i mean it wasn't uh, it was it has had uh, shall we say tumultuous relationship in the past right it doesn't quite resemble like a, a mubarak regime in egypt that's true and or even tunisian regime So in a way, the fact that there is an Islamist regime in power in Sudan, and this is a regime that is not, it wasn't entirely in the camp of the United States, if you like. In a way, it, it resembles, if, if I may say so, the protest movements in Iran, you know, that they are against a regime which is technically, they are not, uh, you know, they, are, they have their own rivalries with the United States and its allies. Uh, what do you think of that comparison? Do you think it's... you know as opposed to the arab spring i mean uh in some aspect it might be true but i will take it a step further to say that uh, you know sudan like any other part of the world is is complicated right so uh and we are people with history despite uh, colonial narratives that depicted those places you know those places have no history or no sophistications so the regime of al bashir I, i always when people ask me i said that is extremely pragmatic and clever regime for the most part been able to manipulate its international relation it depends about uh, uh the situation that requires the survival is a survival regime so it been able to survive for three decades despite you know post 911 world this regime should be toppled for example if you look at the you know composition of power but how survive is survive because it make sure that to bow down to all the demand of the american administration so the sudanese regime actually was very well known for collecting human intelligence during the war in iraq the sudanese regime the first regime engaged in a war in terror in sub-saharan africa allow the CIA to build the most massive office in sub-Saharan Africa. So in that sense, al-Bashir will come and deliver a political speech anti-colonial and all that. And, you know, we are anti-Russia and the U.S., what have you. But at the same time, play the same game, being able to manipulate that. And they kept a, a, a very weird relationship. So in the first half, they've been very close to Iran till they've been pushed to depart from that camp sure so they joined the camp of Qatar and after that they've been pushed to join the camp of Saudi Arabia so if you see that's a survival regime but they couldn't change their skin for the first time it was it because I, I don't think the Saudi Emirati Egyptian coalition have any uh, liking in a region despite their cracking down on their opposition they ruling with the iron fist but that's not the people of Egypt or even in Saudi Arabia or in, inside United Arab Emirates. Uh, nobody agrees. And one of the demands of the opposition said that when we transition the power to a civilian rule, we need to restructure the armed force. And the reason behind that is to pull out our troops from Yemen. And that is a big no-no form that uh, 
the new emerging coalition of Saudi Emirati Egyptians. So that's a very, very revolutionary thinking, but they didn't put it on the top of their demand because you just can't put all your cards, especially the wild one, in the table and to negotiate. So the idea is, is if you look at it with that complexity, yes, indeed, the regime when the first 10 years was kind of anti-imperialist in terms of uh, rhetoric, but in reality, it just cracked down in every single space of freedom inside the country. Uh, and, and, and that's not weird in the yeah. uh, authoritarian I regimes. I mean, exactly. They do have this facade of, if you like, you know, uh, when it comes to outside powers, they use this anti-imperialist rhetoric in order to rally their forces and have that sort of populist rhetoric, if you like, you know, that appeals to people. But even more importantly, they, they implement a new liberal capitalist program when it comes to the economy both in exactly. Iran and Sudan, you know. Um, whether, whether they are in agreement, I mean, officially with IMF or not, that's a separate matter. But in the practice, they do implement those programs. So uh, shifting gears a little bit here, Sudanese Professional Association, SPA, as you mentioned, uh, it's a major force in Alliance for Freedom and Change and a key actor in mobilizing the protests that led to the ouster of Omar al-Bashir after 30 years of his rule on April 11. In a press conference on April 30th, an SPA spokesperson said the um, military council is not serious about handing over power to civilians. SPA seems to be calling for more street actions and work stoppages. While the military is concerned about opening the roads and bridges blocked by demonstrators, the council, the military council has said, has warned that it would not allow chaos and has asked the protesters to open these roads and bridges the two sides have quite diverging views, as you mentioned. One is trying to, one is vying for order and normalcy, if you like, uh, while the other one is pushing for meaningful transformation through grassroots action. What means does this movement for change has at its disposal to bring about these changes? I mean, you know, street protests, you know, work stoppages. Talk about some of mm-hmm. these you know, tactics employed by the um, SBA in particular and grassroots movements. No, definitely bringing a very important point. I think this is one of the things is very close to every single Sudanese I understand when we talk about civil disobedience. Just for the sake of your listeners, the Sudanese opposition tried this so many times. And in the two times they tried that, they've been successfully to uproot a dictator regime. And this is the wild card, they call it in Sudan is complete civil disobedience, paralyze the state. So when the military council says we are not going to accept, uh, you know, kind of uh, these people taking the law in their hands and chaos and all that, the response from the city was, if you clean the DB state, we will clean the street. And just on that, they have uh, pushed for some of these military, the generals to step down. Three of them just resigned. Very true. Yes, and, yes. And, and that's we shows you that, that even the general in the intramilitary council, they understand that they don't have the legitimacy. They don't have the heart of, on the mind of the people. They know they are really vulnerable. They're only there because of the fear tactic that they use that, uh, especially vis-a-vis the international relations that we want to protect Sudan not to descend it into chaos like Libya and, and, and Syria. But they forget one of the most important pieces, what the Sudanese people in the street, they are masters of civil disobedience. And and they said, 
if you try to do to do crackdown on us, we're gonna call for civil disobedience, and civil disobedience will bring any regime down. So, so for me, I think that it shows the maturity, even though they are young people, maturity of SPA and uh, forces of uh, freedom and change, how they actually strategizing and organizing their next step, like how they will respond to a uh, demand from the military council. And they know that they have the, if you will, the revolutionary legitimacy from the street, while the military council does not have any legitimacy. And in reality, General Burhan, the, the, the president of the military council, it's a lot of people within the SPA that we want to trial him as well. But we could accept the reality that to move not into victor justice, into survival justice, that we, 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 we can overcome some of the wrongdoings, but they cannot be the one who will decide how the future of the state. So the sit-in, it was the last step before the complete civil disobedience. And they declare... If there is crackdown, they call for the Sudanese people to do civil disobedience in the whole entire country. So imagine from blocking several roads, now you will have nothing moving. Well, it seems like this is such a clever move. I mean, in terms of which identifying the urban space or, or this, the, this routes that have to be blocked in order to bring stalemate to everything or make the most disruption to the regime. And that's very interesting activities. when you look versus the Arab Spring, for example, using Medana Tahrir, Tahrir Square or Habibo Burgheba Avenue in Tunisia, the Sudanese people use the headquarters of the army to show strength. And that's completely flipping the whole idea of the urban public space who have the space, and when they call for the army, they have a two names for them, the military, inter-military council with representation of generals, or the people's army. So they're calling in the people's army to protect the revolution and denouncing the leadership of the military council. So that's another sophistication in, I think, the Sudanese social movement that building up a generation of understanding the landscape and the difficulties of navigating transition. As you know, uh, you are very aware that transition is not an easy thing. So you can't achieve your goal within a month or a week or six months. It's very hard while you try to decide and to keep all the lines open with the opposition, different political parties. And the military council suggested that in Sudan, currently there is 107 political parties. So imagine if that's true, or yes, even is uh, one quarter of it is true, which I think, that's a lot of voices to incorporate and coordinate, and you respond the next day to the military council. But this sophistication of uh, SPA, the Sudanese Professional Association, being capable of dealing with all this uh, coordination, high level of coordination, and deliver their demand and insisted on it. And the military council always felt that they are under pressure. So they want to get legitimacy from negotiating with the SPA. So SPA being able to recraft, redesign the public space as a space for protest, a space for crafting the new demand. So this morning, uh, on Thursday, May 2nd, they deliver the constitutional memo to the Inter-Military Council, and there is very specific points. And when I read through, it was like the most clever point. Now, they tell them, the Military Council that what exactly they want to do, and that's actually their actual demands. And one of them is they cannot be the leader of the interim, what they call it, a sovereign council, 
but they suggested to them they could be definitely part of it. And any decision on that Supreme Council has to be with the majority of two-thirds. So this is another genius way of thinking. Okay, I'm not going to exclude you, but you cannot make any actual decision. And they insisted that the ultimate decision will rest in the civilian government that will be appointed from freedom and change forces. So it will include all political parties and all the technocrats that have ultimate quality of resilience and resolute, and they have a clean record of actually moving our country to the next stage. And they decided also, the third demand that they create a legislative party that will include at least 40% of women and youth. That's, that's another very specific demand of rechanging mm-hmm. the nature and the future of the Sudanese state. And, and this, this council would actually oversee a bo- another body, which is like, it would be like the, executive the, power, exactly. they would do the day-to-day administrative, and meanwhile, they're working on a new constitution. Exactly. And, and also will oversight the independence of the judiciary. So they want to make sure that the judiciary actually independent and a whole entire running the state and supervising the government will come from the legislative council, while the supreme sovereign council that includes the generals, it will be a symbolic head of a state. But the argument of protesters and the movement for change is that the council should be dominated by civilians, even though it could have certain members of the military. Yeah, very true. Yeah. And I think that's one of the good tactical way in which to move forward from this kind of deadlock. Yeah. I was impressed by this. One of the slogans during these protests have been Adala, you know, uh, justice. Yeah. So I think justice has many different uh, layers, if you like. And one of them has to do with the, as you mentioned, with the um, actions past actions of the people who are currently still in Sudan and, you know, mm-hmm. one way or the other, maybe they're still ruling. Let's just talk about this. What are the forces that comprise Alliance for Freedom and Change? Are there tensions within this bloc between some of the traditional parties, if you like, and the grassroots forces, the ones who would be a tension between formal politics and street politics? For instance, in an interview on May 1st, Sadeq al-Mahdi, the leader of Ummah Party, cautioned protest leaders, and this is one of the traditional parties, he cautioned protest leaders against provoking the military, what he called provoking the military. He said, if we provoke the armed forces contributed to the change, we would be asking for trouble. Can you talk about this? Yeah, true. Just for clarity for your listeners, Sadiq al-Mahdi is uh, the last elected prime minister that deposited by the regime of Omar Bashir, even though he have that legitimacy, but he completely have no whatsoever power in our social, political, and economic revolt that taking place in Sudan right now. So the composition of the forces of freedom and change are really wide in a spectra from far left in a communist party to the right wing of a people congress party, which is split from the, the Islamist movement. So imagine that kind of a spectra. And, and that was the ruling party, the People's Congress Party. Or what is it called? Na- National Congress National Party. Congress. Uh, so when they split in 1999, the ideologue Hassan Trabi been excluded from the movement and he went and created the People's Congress kind of like in reaction to the National Congress. But in this kind of formation and the composition of, of the political alliance within Freedom and Change Declaration, the SPA makes sure that to include everybody, including 
movement that carrying arms and they engaging in armed struggle. So they have like three of them included within this movement. Also youth and women and all other associations that existed. So the idea is to show for that we have the people of Sudan representation under this umbrella. On the other hand, you only have illegitimate military council that is plan B of the regime. So now the, the military council is also with the DB state is not unsophisticated. It's also smart. So they tried so hard to create which between the forces of freedom and change by trying to negotiate with some part, not the other part, including some fraction from Sadiq al-Mahdi's Ummah party. But that also doesn't bear fruits because people start to use social media and say that we have no representation except SPA and freedom and change leadership. So it's very clear that people are very aware of the delicacy of the moment and how it's, it's very dangerous. But at the same time, we understand that we are not naive to say that all the opposition speak with one mind and have one ideology. But at least we have the minimum that we agree on it, that we want a deep democratic state. We want to uproot the deep state of the last 30 years. In order to do that, we can now have a differences in the way in which we can do that. But the SPA have very clear mandate from people in the ground because it's, it's, it's just very extremely people democracy and, if you will, politics of the street that been elevated to the higher stage. And I think that shows also sophistication and respect for our people and their demand. So, you know, you talked about the women and youth. In the past few days, there have been convoys from Nubia and Darfur joining the city in the capital, Khartoum. On the other hand, on April 29, the Sudanese Revolutionary Front, SRF, a coalition of three rebel movements, stated that delegation of the forces of freedom and change does not represent the SRF in its meetings with the Transitional Military Council. How significant are these events and statements? Has the Alliance for Freedom and Change been able to build a national bloc and give voice to the periphery, which is an important aspect in Sudanese politics, in view of the wars and massacres carried out by the Sudanese regime in those regions? I mean, that, that's also an important point. And I, I want to just to imagine within this is fast-paced uh, political development moment, it's very hard actually to make that communicate. Most of the respected rebel movement being uh, signed on the Declaration of Freedom and Change, with the exception of, of one that they suggested that they need to renegotiate. So the idea that most of the Sudanese political player, whether that they're civilian underground or the mobilizer organizer or the armed uh, rebel movements, it seems with the exception of very few, less than 10%, they are signed on the Declaration of Freedom and Change. So now, do we get everybody will agree on it? That's almost impossible. However, I think they made sure that to say there is no exclusion for anybody. Anybody welcome to join. And uh, the Declaration of uh, Freedom and Change is very specific, very simple, numerated very few points that 
is focused in the most immediate goal is bringing peace and stop hostility against the Sudanese in the periphery. So that's one immediate demand of the rebel movement themselves. So the idea is to have a national peace conference among the rebel movement and the Sudanese political parties and their representatives. But you, you can't have that under an interim military council. You have to move to a different kind of era, which is led by civilians in order to make that determination. Given the regional and ethnic diversity in Sudan, is there a concern that Sudan may undergo what Syria has been experiencing? Uh, that's a very good point to bring in into the conversation. I think uh, we already been in semi-serious uh, uh, serious situation due to the brutality of the regime since 2003. Uh, and, and, and the people of Sudan like extremely aware that uh, civil war and civil uh, uh, unrest is not going to result in any uh, good outcome. And if you recall, and I guess a reminder for your listeners, due to the civil war, we uh, South Sudan separated from Sudan in 2011. So I think the scenario of Syria is, is far removed, but it's still looming over head uh, of many people, uh, including myself, that uh, if we are not domesticate the uh, interim military council, we might uh, enter into that vicious cycles. Uh, however, I think uh, the Sudanese, including many in the military in the middle and lower ranks, are very aware and they are in the favor of uh, turning the, the page of uh, civil unrest and, 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 and armed struggle into more civilian kind of uh, state. So in that sense, I would like to be more optimistic in the side that uh, this, the Syrian scenario was perpetuated also by uh, a different type of remaining of the Cold War hegemony over uh, the greater Middle East. So maybe uh, our position in Africa, looking into the African continent, maybe will give us a different type of aspiration that how we can break away from uh, solving our differences uh, through uh, guns. Uh, talk about the organizational and leadership characteristics of this protest movement and movement for change, and whether given its makeup and characteristics, it has the ability to go beyond what the uh, protesters are calling um, Bashirism without Bashir, if you like, and what they call a decorative coup in Sudan. I mean, one one of the uh, uplifting kind of feeling you gain as an observer to the Sudanese landscape currently is the most powerful intervention of our young people, uh, uh, especially uh, in the forefront, our uh, uh, sisters in Sudan. I mean, the struggle of Sudanese women, it never ceases, but it seems escalated and it created a different kind of spaces for uh, reorganizing uh, the space for uh, civil dissidents when all the political parties are went underground for 30 years. So, and, and, and this is one of the brilliancy, I think, of the Sudanese social movement to be able um, to uh, reorganize itself under very unfavorable circumstances. So they've been able to gather through a, a different type of protest. So if you imagine that most of the protests that are organized by the Sudanese Professional Association 
took place in the beginning at my time when they are securing and in neighborhoods. So they made sure that uh, to reach out most of the neighborhoods, that not only just the neighborhoods that close to the center, but even the far removed, uh, and to kind of enter into a, a practice till they gain their momentum. So the composition of the, of the two bodies, so SPA, Sudan uh, Professional Associations, and Freedom and Change, they are different in a sense. The, the former SPA is made up of people usually brought up during this regime. They became professional. They suffer uh, of the Holy Trinity, as I call it, of neoliberal order in, uh, that inflicted in our uh, country that specifically was focusing in extreme uh, uh, economic of extractions in terms of natural resources and minerals. And the second thing, uh, deep privatization of, of, uh, of the state. And the third one, lack of any democratic representations. Uh, and, and that's all happening while in the global context of the rise of ethno-nationalist movement. And if I may add, there was also an element of social control Right, but brought about is 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 a cultural repression brought about very by true, the, very by, true by Islamism in power. Very true, because uh, in in this kind of moment of the rise of ethno-nationalism, religion being utilized and used very effectively, and you can see that whether in Western society or if you look at the Western Hemisphere, for example, in uh, Brazil or Colombia, or if you see it here in the United States by uh, the current administration, or you look at the Turkey in the Philippines or Modi in India. So, so Africa is not spared from that kind of wave. However. I think that the, the, the genius way of the Sudanese youth that reorganizing themselves to d distinguish themselves from that may be what helps them to do so. The ruling party was an, a, a, a deep ingrained in religions, you know, uh, as a, a, a clandestine or a fraction of the Muslim Brotherhood movement have its difference with, with the larger movement. But at the end of the day, it wasn't representing their aspiration, their dream for economic prosperity or freedom, nor representing their deep faith either. So the Sudanese people in general have this kind of layback uh, religion relationship with Sufism Islam. So that's allowed them to coexist and accept different interpretation of, of the religion. And that has to be to break away from the social control mechanism. So in the cultural manifestations and otherwise. And even the representation of women. I don't know if your listeners are aware of that, but the Sudanese elected the fairest woman in 1965 to the parliament, uh, Ustaza Fatma Ahmed Ibrahim, and she became one of the iconic leaders of uh, many movement of resistance in Sudan. So 1965, I'm not quite sure if the American Congress elected a woman at that time. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I'm not but, quite sure either. But, but what I'm saying is, this is a, 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 it doesn't happen as in accident or in in in, in a, a dark moment, but actually it came out of a massive uh, civil uprising, just like this one in 1964. So I, I wasn't born that time, but that's our history. So this this generation of today. Uh, when you hear uh, call themselves Kandakas or Kandaka for a singular, that's an extension of this is 
a resolute characteristic of the Sudanese woman within the struggle for social change. So they never see, they've always been there. But, you know, the crackdown utilizing religion or ethno-nationalism in Sudan or, you know, the most uh, paralyzing effects of neoliberal order in, in the country devastate majority of women, you know, in the periphery or in the center. So the crackdown on social control was applied mainly on women, and that's the reason why we see them. Their presentation is not just because. No, because they felt the burn and they carry out the struggle for social change and for transformation. And, and, and all these uh, elements together actually make up what your question asked in the beginning. The composition of this new rise of type of movement, social movement, politics of the street, of concern, of people really burned by the experimentation of neoliberalism. So even though they say that we are independent, independence means we are not member of a political party. But that doesn't mean we don't have an ideological understanding of the state or politics. That's a completely separate issue because for 30 years, most of this generation born and grew up, they never saw a political party except the ruling party. So they never been member of that ruling party because they refused to join the euphoria. Uh, and they kept watching and reorganizing themselves. So I think that's opened up a new era for social mobilization in, in the whole entire continent of Africa, and I hope that will spread into the Middle East as well, that sometimes maybe you don't need just political party to lead the change. Maybe sophisticated social movement that acquires specific tools of resistance, whether that in the arts and culture, whether that uh, in educational uh, corridors of, of engaging with different subjects and open up yourself to the rest of the world, you bring in what is suitable for you and reject what is not, and always challenging the authority of the state and social control mechanism. So Sudanese Professional Association, SPA, it's my understanding that their leadership is not well known. I mean, it's somewhat secretive, isn't it? I mean, I think that's one of their uh, uh, successful model. They made sure that uh, to keep the organization is very tight-knit and, and not to reveal its leadership because the crackdown was uh, unbelievable during the last 30 years. So they make sure that they have an internal, sophisticated, clear line of communication among themselves, but not necessarily people will know them. Because you can't oppose a regime like al-Bashir regime or the Islamist regime and you declare your leadership. And also, even the moment, the current moment, has not arrived for them to declare who they are. Uh, I, I read a lot in uh, Western media that people want to know who they are. I'm, I'm, in my opinion, it's not important to know who they are. It's important to know what the program they bring in the table. And I think their program is very clear uh, and very sophisticated and straightforward. So they are literally resembling the trade unions uh, in the shadow because the regime, uh, 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 also this is for your uh, listeners, the Sudanese trade union was one of the really very well known in the region and have massive participation in international uh, unions movement uh, since the 50s. So uh, they have deep-rooted in the society. So doctor or teacher or uh, Worker in the railroads or uh, lawyers, uh, uh, lawyer and civil other civil services servants. Sorry, uh, all these people they know how to organize themselves in their own uh, 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 smaller bodies. So 
during the 30 years, the regime makes sure to crack down on all this organization and union and deem them uh, illegitimate and create their own ones. So the one who just have loyalty to the regime. So the people who within that kind of professional, they create their own shadow ones and they start to coordinate for the last six years. And that's what the binnacle of that struggle we see today. Well, it's a good approach in terms of in the context of authoritarian regimes that tend to dec- decapitate the leadership, uh, you know, and, and, and sort of in order to control the nodes of resistance or, or destroy the nodes of resistance. I mean, as you said, as long as the program is, is something clear and, and the path they embark on, the road to power is also something that you is defendable. And it seems like the tactics they're using is you know is being supported by the by the will of the majority or the will of the people. Um, so just just you know uh, continue on what you said about women in in Sudan. Uh, given the agency of women in Sudan and their history, there have been complaints by women's groups that while sixty percent of protesters have been women in the recent protests, they are they only have ten percent of seats at the negotiation table with the military transitional council. Is that a credible account? How do you respond to that? Um, um, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not quite sure uh, in terms of the percentage of the negotiating teams because it seems to me the negotiating teams uh, change persons while they kept the, 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 the message intact. So it might be true or not true. But what, my, my, what I would say about that is uh, the, the SPA and the opposition made sure to include in their constitutional memo that delivered on, on May 2nd that the legislative body of the transition period have to include 40% of its member, which is 120, 40% of the 120 to be women and a representation of, of youth. So it might, if you put them together, maybe it will be half of that body. And I hope that that's one of the corrective methods that we should all keep an eye out for, that women representation is so vi- vital and so important to sustain uh, the aspiration of the Sudanese people. Uh, they've been in the forefront of the struggle. They suffer tremendously. They've been imprisoned. They've been tortured. They've been raped, sexually harassed during the regime that uh, 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 hide behind uh, the umbrella of religion. So our mother and sister and daughters, they always been in the forefront of the struggle and they deserve to uh, also enjoy the fruit of their struggle and to enjoy uh, equal participation of designing the future of the state in Sudan. And I think if we fail on that, we felt tremendously of building the new Sudan. I think you might have alluded to this earlier in our conversation, but what lessons have the Sudanese forces for change learned from Tunisian and Egyptian uprisings with respect to the structure of the state, its institutions, and its coercive and bureaucratic arms? I think one of the fundamental lessons they learned is was to, you have to uproot the DB state. Otherwise, there is no social change will take place. The second thing, you cannot trust the uh, high-ranking journals in the army. By default, these two elements, they, uh, their purpose or their survival is about to keep the status quo. Or even if they get a moment of taking their breath, they will circumvent again uh, the whole gain of, 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 uh, of the aspiration of uh, uh, social revolts. So I think... Uh, 
and, and the third element I will say also as well is uh, we have to keep it extremely peaceful. And I'm not sure if, if uh, your, most of your listeners will hear the, the loud and clear slogan of the Sudanese revolt was, the fundamental one, Silmiya, Silmiya, which is mean peaceful, peaceful. And they insisted on that. It has to be a peaceful uh, uh, social revolt in order not to descend it in a bloodshed. So three lessons I think major they learn about it is, is to keep it uh, peaceful and, 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 and to keep an uh, uh, eye out for uh, the co-opted leadership of the army and also not to allow for a quick uh, transition into quote-unquote election, which is not going to bring about change. And the final thing I will say also, what we learn, or all of us in the ground and outside in the diaspora, that's also the international relation with other regional power, which is really kind of, uh, 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 it might be the most tough one to crack. I was just going to ask you that, actually, as the fourth item. In fact, I was going to say, how about this one? Uh, let's talk about the regional players. A few weeks ago, Saudi Arabia and the UAE pledged a $3 billion aid package to Sudan, while the Saudis and Emiratis, uh, in addition to the Egyptian regime, appear to be backing the Sudanese military council. Turkey and Qatar, which have, been, which have competing interests uh, with the trio, Saudis, Emiratis, and Egyptians, appear to be more closely aligned. Historically, they appear to be more closely aligned with Sudan's uh, Islamists. Uh, can you talk about these external actors and their objectives in Sudan? Is there a concern that Sudan may become a regional battleground? Uh, I, I think I think Sudan is a regional battleground and, and been for uh, some while since the uh, uh, mid of the Cold War era. And if you recall most of the contestation armed struggle inside uh, that part of the world, sub of the Sahara and North Africa against Libya or otherwise, actually took place in almost the western region of Sudan. Uh, we've been engaging in a, a lot of, of war that not necessarily Sudan have anything to deal with uh, or to do with uh, that impacted the southern part of Sudan and western part of Sudan. Um, but today, the geo, geographical location and geostrategical location and also the natural resources of, of Sudan, it, it, it is a battleground for uh, uh, expansion of uh, uh, influence and interest, whether that economics or political, for multiple players. I will take them one by one. For example, Egypt. Egypt, one of their deep national security issue is the water of the River Nile. The water of the River Nile, almost two-thirds of it run into Sudan, through Sudan. So uh, if they don't secure their quote-unquote, uh, southern national interest, Egypt could be really starved. So they will make sure all the time that to have a client, client state or a client regime in the capital city of Sudan. And to be clear, the Egyptian regime seems to be at odds with the Ethiopian regime over how the use of Niles. Of course, and that's... With that's the just, new project in Ethiopia. Yeah, that's a cement, my, my, my argument, that they can't lose Sudan as well, because Ethiopia and Sudan, who's the major supply of almost 90% of the uh, water of the Nile, and they use almost nothing out of it. Uh, but the Egyptians, uh, uh, they think they have the right to demand. So any changing of leadership, of understanding that kind of relationship, it might jeopardize uh, the stability of Egypt. Um, 
The second thing uh, you alluded to in the beginning, you uh, between the two camps, uh, the Qatari uh, Turkey versus Saudi Egyptian Emirati alliance, uh, the Sudanese regime for a long period of time been mastering the the aspect of uh, survival. So they've been switching camps for sometimes. They have been in, hedging. Yeah, including even Iran for for uh, brief period of time. So the Sudanese regime. Jumping between the two camps, uh, it seems it, it tried to strike a deal between these two hegemonic regional uh, uh, powers that when they reshaping the whole infrastructure of the North Africa and the Middle East, Sudan was a key interlocker for, for all these relationships. So if, if you include Egypt, you cannot uh, forget about Sudan. And if you want to monitor the... Uh, you know, uh, international trade pathway of the Red Sea, you cannot forget about Sudan because Sudan is the second largest uh, country uh, that opened into the Red Sea. And we know in the other side of the Red Sea is the Saudi Arabia. And is it true that the reports, uh, are the reports, tr- uh, is it true that there were reports that Turkey is interested in creating a naval base that's very in true. Sudan? No, that's very true. I mean, one of one of the expansion of uh, Turkey or rebuilding its relationship with Africa, Sudan was one of their major uh, country of investment. I mean, in an ideal situation, there is nothing wrong with that. But the situation never been ideal. And, and never been uh, favoring the building a relationship between the peoples of Turkey and the people of Sudan, but rather the two regimes. Asymmetric uh, power relations, too. Very true, very yeah. true. So, and, and the implication of Qatar as well, uh, uh, even though most of, a lot of people in Sudan, uh, uh, we've been in conversation, it seems like they despite the other side. That's not necessarily they like uh, uh, Qatar uh, and, and Turkey, but they really despise the Saudi, Emirati, Egyptian allies because it's, it's really allies of, of dark power, of destruction, of war, unjustified war that carrying right now again is the people of Yemen. Uh, and we cannot stand by to see the people of Yemen brutalized for no good reason. And, and, and it seems this hegemonic new formation of this ally, alliance, they try to rewrite the new map of the Middle East and North Africa. And, and I stated earlier, Sudan is the key interlocker to provide some particular system in terms of natural resources. Uh, a place that if you secure it, you secure national security of Egypt, and that's demanded by the Egyptian uh, Sisi regime. So, so, so Sudan being always uh, being put in between these two camps, and the Islamist regime of Bashir and before him Trabi, they always play on these two camps, and they've been able to extract some concession from both of them. Uh, throughout uh, uh, the years. But I think they reach out the point of re- no returns. They have to make a choice. And when they choose the camp of Saudi, Marathi, and Egyptian, they lost uh, the trust of the Qatari and, and, and Turkey plus Iran as well. But still, they kept a good relationship with the Russian. So it's very interesting survival regime. So, so, so we will see how the new... Uh, civilian government will be able to do and one of their declarations that they want to rewrite the relationship with all major power, regional or international based on the Sudanese sovereign and their interest. So uh, I think that's a very wise way in which to think about to distangle from those kind of uh, 
deep state relationships rather than to build it in a, in, in a kind of transparent way as a relationship between equal power, equal country, and sovereign states. Would it be accurate to state that uh, this rivalry between these two camps also manifests itself within the military, Sudanese military? Very true, very true. Within the military and within the uh, Islamist movement in Sudan. So some of them, they see they are not half a one voice within the military and the Islamic uh, Islamist movement in Sudan. They don't see eye to eye the same two camps. So some of them prefer the Qatari uh, turkey alliance over the Saudi Emirati ones because I, I think the Saudi Emirati ones is the most uh, darker and, 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 and ugliest one, and, it, uh, and uh, the price is too high for, for people to stand behind it. So f- for this sense, we see that all the initiative come from the Saudi Egyptian Emirati, comes through the Emirati because they have traditionally built a good relationship with the people of Sudan. So all the messages coming through to the uh, military council come through the United Arab Emirates. And that's, uh, uh, it shows that how they wait on all their trust, they build, put it on uh, this interim military council. But uh, fortunately for the people of Sudan and the region, three of, of the members of the military council being forced to resign for their obvious relationship with the Saudis and Emiratis. But it's still, they have uh, General Burhan and General Hamidi which are very close ally with the Emiratis. Several years ago, I was reading about in United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia's investment in, uh, well, I don't know if you call it investment, they're trying to acquire property, land in particular, agricultural land in Sudan. Is that still an important factor? It, it, was, it, was, in the, it was meant to be cr- for creating food security for these two countries, you know, United Arab Emirates and the... Saudis. Yeah, I mean, I think it's still and it's still in place. Uh, uh, the, the food scarcity in the Gulf states is a really serious national threat. Uh, if you don't secure your food, it doesn't matter how much money you have. And Sudan have massive arable land for agriculture. So most of the uh, Gulf states, including Kuwait, uh, Emirates, uh, and, and, and Qatar, they invest on those lands in Sudan. But I think by far is, is the Saudi who have more uh, land that, whether utilized or not utilized, but still they lease it. So the Sudanese regime uh, of Omar Bashir and uh, uh, Muslim uh, Islamist regime in Sudan for the last 30 years, really they sold or lease those land for very, very cheap price. That's what I understand. The arrangement was really uh, adverse, I mean, to, to Sudanese And interest. this is one of the demands of the right. SPA and, and from the opposition, is to rewrite those deals. I, I, and I think that's one of the threats, too, uh, for this power. Like, we cannot accept that reality. We will be happy to share our natural resources, but in a very equal manner that will benefit also the Sudanese state and Sudanese people, but you cannot lease your, the best land while your people are starving uh, for food. So where does the Trump administration stand vis-a-vis the changes in Sudan? They have been fairly silent. They did issue a statement uh, as, as a lead-up to uh, Omar, Bashir, Omar al-Bashir's uh, ouster. Um, but in general, I, I gather there have been a division of labor here, the Saudis and Emiratis are carrying on? I think you're right. I think you're right. And and, and sometimes, you know, uh, silence is also uh, you take an opposition uh, uh, when you stay silent. 
Uh, and I think that's uh, the tactic of, of uh, Trump administration, not to get involved uh, uh, in, in, in the Sudanese issue overtly. Because there is there's only two choices for them. Either you support the democratic uh, change or the uh, military coup, which is what we almost have right now. So they don't favor, uh, it seems to me, the transition to a civilian role. So the, the best scenario for them and the best option is to keep silence. And I think that's one of, uh, uh, I will ask your listeners that we should demand in the United States that our government to actually support the aspiration of the Sudanese people and to denounce any relationship with this interim military council. It is our responsibility that to make sure that we not create a rogue state again and after that we inflict pain in the people of Sudan as we did uh, since uh, Clinton administration when he banished the, the same this regime uh, in 1997 and the Sudanese people bear the burden of that economic embargo that lasted for uh, until uh, Obama administration lifted technically and uh, uh, Trump administration lifted completely. So, so there is a real problem that uh, we end up in this country, uh, uh, you know, create a relationship with authoritarian and dictatorship, and later on when they behave wrongly, we punish the whole entire population, and we see that, for example, in Venezuela, we see that in Iran, we see we see that, uh, and I hope we saw that in Sudan, and I hope we don't see it again. Uh, and and that's the responsibility of the international community. And here, if I have a moment, I will also don't want to spare the European Union from this kind of uh, stay in silence. We should be, I guess, I suppose we should be thankful that Donald Trump did not come and say Omar al Bashir is a good man. Or, but he may still come out and say that about General Burhan in Sudan, I suppose. I hope not. But just to um, conclude this, um, on April 15, the African Union had given the Sudanese military 15 days to hand over power to civilian rule. But um, that deadline passed. Uh, time came and it didn't happen. But in a meeting um, that was just held on April 30th in Addis Ababa, Addis Ababa uh, the African Union decided to extend the deadline for what they call an additional period of up to 60 days for the military in, the, in Sudan to hand over power to a civilian-led transitional authority. The Egyptian leader, Sisi, um, who seems, seems to have influenced this decision, what do you make of this decision and, and what significance does the African Union's decision have in Sudan? Uh, uh, this is really a very important point, and I think just for clarity for your listeners, also uh, the CC is the president of Egypt, uh, is uh, the chair. Uh, residing chair of the African Union for these terms. And indeed, you are absolutely right. He really renegotiated the extending the period for another two months, uh, which uh, technically could be. Uh, and he was asking for three months. That's very true. But <laughs> he fa- he met with a lot of pressure from African states. So this is another another uh, point that uh, I'm trying to make throughout my conversation with people from the region that really the Sudanese experimentation is really should ally itself with the African Union. Why is the only international regional party that actually sided with the aspiration of the Sudanese people? If you look at the Arab League, no a single statement from the Arab League supporting the Sudanese aspiration. If you look at the Organization of Islamic State, not a single one. Uh, again, European Union, not a single one. 
uh, uh, United States equivocally nothing. So this we showed us, show the people of Sudan who's our really true allies. I think I'm very proud uh, as an African, uh, Arab African, that, that there is a regional body like the African Union. Actually, they stand for the demand of turning over the power to the civilian role. Uh, I, 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 at the same time, I understand that the African Union doesn't have political tools to do anything with it, but they could suspend the membership of Sudan, and that will be a slap in the face for, for the military rulers. And I think this type of pressure, it might shorten the, the lifespan of the military council and close the door for their uh, uh, maneuvering and try to circumvent all the demands of the Sudanese people. So, um, and, 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 and I think that the dirty role that uh, the leadership of Egypt playing in the region is, will be really, uh, really manifest itself in, in the Sudanese questions. It must be supported by the uh, financial arms or financial support of Saudis and uh, uh, Emirates to the, to the African countries. No? It's, it's very true because, uh, you know, uh, for a long period of time, also uh, uh, the, the liberatory project in the, Arab, in the Middle East and the Arab countries uh, within the social movement neglected uh, to, to rebuild the relationship with, with the continent of Africa. And as a result, we became really ripe, uh, uh, easy victims for uh, this manipulative regimes that they're really exploiting their people and exploiting uh, 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 other countries' uh, people's aspirations, as we see in it in, in, in Libya, for example, is a clear example how the Emirati actually devastating the aspiration of the uh, Libyan people, even when they come to term to have a peace agreement, but yet the Emirati insisted to support General Haftar, who really uh, a war criminal and hunted by international uh, body that's, the only legitimacy he gained is from the deep state in the United States and sometimes overtly from the State Department of the United States while he's really devastating his people. I mean, and, and that's one thing that we hope we don't see in Sudan, that because of our geolocation or strategic location south of Egypt next to Libya or uh, uh, as an interlocker for international trade through the uh, uh, Canal Suez, through the Red Sea, we became a victims of, of, of the curse of geography. So, uh, and I think the social movement in Sudan and the youth movement and SP and, and the umbrella of the Sudanese opposition, they're extremely aware that, and they went for negotiation with these places that to, to make sure that we are, our revolution or our national uh, uh, intifada is not against neighboring country, is against, uh, maltreatment of our people that they seek to live in freedom, dignity, and building the future of economic prosperity for themselves that will be extended to the, uh, uh, their neighbors. But I think it will be a deadly mistake of the next civilian role if they did not uh, focus more in relationship with the African continent. I'm not saying to depart from our uh, Arab friends and uh, uh, and neighbors, but really we need to build a, a good relationship also in the African context to strengthen the African institutions for solving uh, a lot of problems have to do with uh, uh, civic uh, civil wars and civic conflicts and, and building a new type of, of rising this continent. So in order to keep our youth 
in the continent to build the future rather than providing and became a factory for uh, uh, producing just refugees and migrants that are extremely vulnerable for exploitation by uh, the neoliberal order around the globe. Of course, a comical version of uh, what you referred to would be what hap- happened actually several years ago, and the architect of that was Muhammad al-Gaddafi. So remember, he said, I give up on, I'm paraphrasing, he gave up on the Arab League, basically said, I'm going to form alliance with the Afri- our African brothers and sisters. <laughs> yeah, that's indeed is comical because you can't trust anything come from Gaddafi. But I'm indeed saying that Sudan for a long period of time neglected uh, it is. A uh, really good geolocation that uh, is an interlocker between these two worlds. And, 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 and for example, myself, I'm very proud to be connected to the both worlds. I'm Afro-Arab, and, that, and, and I, we cannot pay attention to one part of our identity, relationship, uh, cultural heritage without ignoring the other. And, 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 and we're building just relationship toward that when we need them, I think the only one who responded to the Sudanese aspiration was the African Union. So I think that's a very clear indication. An important development, I must say. Yeah, as I said, it was, it was the last question, but I think it's a very decisive issue. Well, thank you so much.